Well, I just wanted to, for one announcement, give you a heads up in the homework, because this year we haven't really added in extra homework um, yet, but we're, we added a little section called Looking Deeper. So just beware that there's a little extra reading um, for the homework, so you might want to plan for that. Sarah just wanted you to be able to read about the image of God before she did her lesson next time on biblical womanhood. So just to warn you about that. And also if you if you want to pick up the handout, Jacob had an extra handout with lots of extra verses on hospitality that will he'll talk about that, but we can have that as a reference to do further study if we want to. Um, I'm just excited for this morning because we get to, we haven't really taught on hospitality in a few years and it's kind of a neat topic for, especially for women, but it's for everyone. It's commanded for everyone in the Bible. So it's going to be fun to hear what God's word says about hospitality this morning. Um, and I just want to thank you guys for being here. It's fun to see all of your faces from this perspective. <laughs> so thank you. Um, I'm just going to go ahead and pray, and then we'll just get right into um, But first, the exciting thing is we have Wendy here. She's going to share the disciplines. Um, she's one of our discussion group leaders, as a lot of you guys know. And this is her first year doing that, but we're excited for her to come and share just what how God is... Um, leading her heart in doing the disciplines and making that a part of her life. So it'll be fun to hear that from her. Dear Lord God, we love you. We thank you that you orchestrated this whole um, ministry and this reason that we're here this morning. Thank you that you even command us to not neglect being together. Um, what wise words you have, Lord, in your word. Thank you that we could actually be together this morning, all sitting under your word at the same time, learning the same things, hearing from you, so that we could rub up against each other and encourage each other. Thank you that we have your son in common, that you would um, make a way for us to be saved and to have eyes to see truth in your word to have hearts that are able to not sin and to um, see your word and want to change hearts that are soft that will be molded into your um, people and hearts that even want to come together and be with other believers. Father, this is all just your evidence of grace working in our lives. So we just thank you and praise you for each woman who's here. Just pray that we will have soft hearts and be eager to hear and to listen and to be changed. We pray for Jacob as he comes, that he will be um, also just speaking your words, that your words will come clearly out of his mouth and that you will, your word will be handled well and accurately and that your the power of your word will go forth and just make deep roots into each of our hearts. I also pray for Wendy that you would just 
give her um, good encouragement, that we would listen well and be encouraged by what she says. May your name be lifted high this morning, Lord. In, in your precious son's name we pray. Amen. Well, what a privilege it is to have this opportunity to share about the disciplines with you this morning. Um, this is my fourth time going through Wellspring, and each year the Lord has used a variety of biblical um, fun- fundamental topics that are covered, the clear teaching from his word, the encouraging discussions with fellow believers, and yes, the thought-provoking homework that I haven't always wanted to do, um, to all work together to help me grow in seeing the hidden sins in my heart and to lead me to repentance. I've come to see that this process is such a beautiful indication of how much my Savior loves me that he not only paid the penalty for my sins on the cross, but pursues my heart to remove all hindrances to being in a perfect relationship with himself. In return, as 1 Timothy 4.10 says, for it is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. The wellspring purpose and disciplines are tools that help us strive towards God and fix our hope on him. Let's start by turning our binders over and reading the Wellspring Purpose together. So the Wellspring Purpose is to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts towards Jesus Christ with the Word of God so that they live gospel-transformed lives, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. So ladies, how much time do you spend thinking about your purpose? Like before planning a trip, making a purchase, performing work, or getting up in the morning? Maybe you're like me, where life can get routine, and I do things because I want to, I feel like it, or it's what's expected. However, as I've allowed the Word of God to pierce my heart and judge my thoughts and intentions, as Hebrew 4.12 says, I've been realizing how much every intent and thought of my heart are only evil continually, Genesis 6.5. Although I'm not always aware, my thoughts, choices, and actions always have a purpose behind them. And by default, that purpose is going to be self-serving and in rebellion to God's purposes. How needful I am for reminders that help me see my selfish purpose, purposes, repent, and choose to live for his purposes. This is where the importance of our Wellspring verse comes in. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life, Proverbs 4.23. Through the guarding of my heart, I become more aware of what my mind is thinking, my heart is feeling, and my will is choosing, so that I can shepherd them towards Jesus Christ as our dis- disciplines direct. Discipline 1, the heart, says the faithful woman of God shepherds her heart worshipfully towards God through the word of God, and in particular, the gospel. So my natural bent is to take control of my circumstances. I find enjoyment in making plans and seeing them happen just as I determined, and highlighting my ability to foresee and take care of potential issues so that things keep moving smoothly, which can be a very self-serving purpose. So when a recent trip I took went from the plan five days, then 10, or the two seven, and then 10, and finally ended at 14 days before I returned home, There were many opportunities where heart shepherding needed to be done. The night before leaving, I was confronted with a first choice to extend the trip so that I could minister to a friend 
or hold to my preset schedule. Through guarding my heart and asking the Lord for his wisdom, I could see the choice really came down to trusting him and walking by faith, his purposes, or trusting my plans and keeping to what, I, what, keeping to what was comfortable, my plans. Proverbs, um, for, uh, Proverbs 16, 9 says, The heart of man plans his ways, but Yahweh directs his steps. Thankfully, by God's grace, to trust his sovereignty, I had the peace I had peace in giving up my control and letting Jesus direct my steps. As more choices presented themselves that led to further extensions of my trip, and sometimes having to choose between two good options that had their own set of consequences, I was able to surrender my self-serving desires for control and comfort and walk by faith, trusting the God who, in, who indeed did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he, not also with him, graciously give us all things? Romans 8.32 Discipline 2, the home, says the faithful woman of God is concerned for those in her home and ministers to them with her heart fixed on God and his word. The set of circumstances that led to my trip being extended placed me in a different home for seven days where I had the opportunity to live out this discipline in a more tangible way. You see, living alone with just my Cleo kitty, I don't have a daily concern with, for others in my home so that it's been a temptation um, for me not to give this area much attention. Thankfully, through the consistent teaching at Wellspring to see the importance that God's word places on the home, I've been actively looking for ways to minister and care for the, to others through hospitality, the topic I'm thankful Jacob will be teaching on today. I knew that my influence in the home could build up or tear down, as Proverbs 14.1 says, the wise woman builds her house, but the woman of folly tears it down with her own hands. Not only was my willingness to serve and to prefer others above myself important areas to seek the Lord with, but also my words, my countenance, and my demeanor were all going to be areas um, that would influence those in the home. Thankfully, it was a pleasure to serve and, and with joy to be a part of that household those seven days, and with humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, as Ephesians 4.2 says, to show concern and minister to all those who came in the home. However, there was one evening where I found myself spiraling into a self-focused, distant state. I could tell that my quiet demeanor and my sad countenance was causing concern for others, and that I had a choice to make. Was I going to let my focus stay on me and tear down, or was I going to shepherd my heart towards the Lord and build up? By his grace, I was able to take a few moments alone and bring my desires for attention, recognition, and control before him to surrender, repent, and speak truths to my heart from his word. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forevermore, as Psalm 1611 says. What a joy the rest of the evening was as I sought to be in his presence and continue caring for those I was with. Discipline three, ministry. With a heart fixed on God and keeping her God-given ministry within her home a priority, the faithful woman of God steps into the church in every part of life to shepherd others towards God and the gospel. For most of the 14-day trip, I had the blessing to be with friends from the GBC body and share encouraging fellowship that included living out the disciplines by shepherding each other's hearts towards God and the gospel. What a privilege to not only step into the church, but every part of life, as we were in a different state and in a different home. 
uh, with other believers and experience the unity and single purpose of pleasing the Lord that his word leads us to. Above all else, or sorry, above all these things, put on love, which is a perfect bond of unity, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, so which, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Colossians 3, 14 through 15. This fellowship also fueled my desire to share gospel truths with the many unbelievers I was meeting and to grow in praying that I, that I would be more faithful with those opportunities. Truly, the body does build the body. As I reflect on this trip, two realizations become clear. First, I could, I could have missed what turned out to be such a sweet time of encouragement and growth in the Lord if I had not shepherded my heart to start with. I'm sure I would have had a nice trip, according to my plan, but I would have missed out on so much more that I could not have foreseen and maybe would not have chosen. Discipline one is so foundational for my sanctification and growing desire to reflect Christ. My heart needs to be shepherded. Second, these disciplines don't just happen when, they, when we need them. They need to be practiced. The daily heart shepherding I had been doing through spending time in God's word, praying for his help, and growing in my desire to live dependently on him enabled me to walk with him through this trip. It truly is the Lord who changes our hearts, and I'm thankful for the many means and resources he provides, including Wellspring, to, that expose our hearts for his work to be done. So ladies, how much time will you be spending thinking about your purpose? I pray as you reflect on this season in Wellspring and the truths that God's word that you're reading, you will be seeing a growing desire to think on and live for his purposes more and more. I leave you with Philippians 2, 1 through 2. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, fulfill my joy that you may think the same way by maintaining the same love, being united in spirit and thinking on one purpose. Wendy, that was really good and like a perfect intro for what we're going to be talking about for the the way that shepherding your heart rightly will translate into D2, D3, properly exercised. And then there's a feedback right back into shepherding your heart. Just, it was, uh, that was really good. Thank you. Um, so today we're going to be talking about hospitality. This is a, a hard topic to distinguish. Is this discipline two? Is this discipline three? It's sort of the interface where those two things flow into each other. And of course, never playing leapfrog, never skipping discipline one. This only will work well. Hospitality only works well in a home where all of the members have been uh, shepherding your own heart. And we're going to see why as we dig into the <clears throat> the ground of hospitality. Uh, before we start, let's pray again quickly. God, thank you for your love for us. And while we were enemies, we were reconciled to you by the death of your son. 
uh, that you've invited us into your family. God, thank you for your word, and I pray that I would accurately preach it, accurately represent it, um, that even early in the morning, uh, you would help these women listen well, and more than just change their their mind or their thinking, that this would affect the way that we live. God, I pray your Holy Spirit would be active this morning in speaking, listening, and applying. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, <clears throat> the gospel, or sorry, hospitality is a topic that we haven't talked about, I think, ever explicitly in Wellspring. It was years ago, like more than a decade ago, I taught a shell of this towards in build, but it's been a long time I've been wanting to do this, so thank you for the opportunity. Um, I just want you to see that hospitality really is the outworking of the gospel in the home to outsiders. Hospitality is just one of the many ways that the woman saved by grace will care for her home. Most of the time when you think about caring for your home, you think of those who are naturally in your home, the ones who have natural claim to your home because they're your family. They live in the home. Um, but like Wendy said, that, that leads to a temptation where singles or those whose kids have left the home, you, you start to think, well, maybe, maybe D2 doesn't apply, right? It's just this short little number between discipline one and discipline three. But I want you to see that in hospitality, you're inviting outsiders into your home, people who are not part of your family to be treated as your family. And it's, it's here through hospitality that discipline two begins to mesh into discipline three, and it's rooted in the gospel that should fuel your discipline one. So discipline one is not content to stay in your heart. We saw last time I talked that if you fail in discipline one, you don't shepherd your heart. The effects of that poison will taint and damage, ruin your home and your ministry. Similarly, a well-shepherded heart to the gospel isn't going to be able to be content in discipline one. It's going to overflow into your home and your ministry, and your home will be foundational in the outworking of that. If we are shepherding our hearts towards God in the gospel, directing those in our home to that same God who we love, our homes will be the best place or at least a very important one to show the love of God to others. Fundamentally, I want you to see that hospitality is not optional, right? And that hospitality is not just a good idea or an optional arena of ministry. The Christian is commanded to be hospitable. Hospitality is a qualification for an elder in other words, it's just a mark. So that means, oh, don't just let the elders do it. If you think of what are the elder qualifications, they're just descriptions of mature biblical life, right? This is down the list. So if you're saying, oh, an elder must be hospitable, we should take that to mean 
in addition to these hospitality commands, okay, it's commanded of all of us, and really it should just be the mark of all mature believers, all exemplary Christians. In other words, it's a trait for which, towards which we all must strive. So there are at least three explicit commands to be hospitable, and then some commendations to be hospitable. So we see that hospitality is both commanded and commended, Let's read those so you're familiar with those commands and commendations, and then we'll jump into the uh, lesson on them. And so these are on the top of your note, or sort of mid-top of your notes on page one. First Peter 4, 8 through 10, that's where we're actually going to be spending the bulk of our time. It says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Hebrews twelve thirteen, In the context of genuine love and letting brotherly love continue, that's earlier in chapter 12, he says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Again, a, a command. <clears throat> and then Hebrews 13, 2, again in the context of love, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, thereby some have entertained angels unawares. And then we see, so we see at least three commands to hospitality, explicit commands not limited to the group who's to apply that command. And then we see hospitality commended, uh, at least in First Timothy three two and Titus one eight, an overseer must be hospitable. Specifically of women, if you think in First Timothy five, the widows to whom the church is responsible to care, one of the descriptions of that widow is that she must have been hospitable, if she's a uh, a godly woman, whom the church is to enroll in the the widow care roles. So we could continue to talk about the commands, but before we get there, and we, we will, I want to lay the foundation for why hospitality has to be a descriptor, why it has to be not optional for the Christian. And that's because the gospel is the good news of God's hospitality towards us. So the gospel is the foundation of all of our Christian life, right? It's how we got into God's family. It's how we became Christians. And it's not only the thing that starts us out, but it is the foundation for our outworking of our Christian life and all of life. And so just we would expect it would be no different. And you'll see it's remarkably applicable to hospitality. So what I want, I want you to maybe think of, you might, I haven't defined hospitality yet, but let's, let's define it now. And you'll see where this definition comes from as I go. It's, you can write this at the, the bottom of, of page two, where it's the gospel is God's, the good news of God's hospitality, or bottom of page one, sorry. Good news of God's hospitality towards his enemies Hospitality is then treating those who have no natural claim to your home as if they are family in your home. 
It's treating those who have no natural claim to being in your home as if they are family in your home. Where do I get this? Well, let's think of ourselves before salvation. Who, who were we in relationship to God before salvation? Enemies, Romans 5, 6 through 10. We were weak. We were sinners. We were cut off from him. What did we have to offer him? Did, did he invite us into his family because we, we had something great? He's like, oh, that's going to make my family better. That's going to make... God, God was not deficient. He did not save us because he was deficient. He did not save us because he needed us. While we were weak, while we were helpless, while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, while we were children of wrath, Ephesians 2, sons of disobedience, Ephesians 2, he saved us. In essence, we were not his family, right? Who were we before salvation? Not God's family, and that undersells the distinction. And after salvation, who were we? God's family, God's sons. Open up your Bible to Ephesians 2. This is amazing. And I guess before Ephesians 2, I just want you to start in Ephesians 1, verse 5. I want you to see Ephesians 5, or 1, 3 through 14 is one long sentence, one of the most amazing sentences in the Bible that describes our salvation. It starts with, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what's amazing, start to, he's the Lord Jesus Christ's Father. And he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. He chose us, if you're a Christian, before the foundation of the world, that you would be holy and blameless before him in love. And then what did he do before the foundation of the world towards us? He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. Before there was anything, while well, he was imperfect, he, he was not deficient, experiencing the perfect triune love, he said, I'm going to make everything. And from the, rebel the people who will rebel, I will choose some to be adopted as sons. I'm going to make people, and I'm going to choose some of them to be adopted as my son. I already have a son. And through that son and his death, I'm going to choose some rebels to be adopted into my family. According to my purpose, to the praise of his glorious grace. And now let's see the outworking of that. We see God's intention, kind intention before history. Now in history, how does that work itself out? 2-1. And you, us, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. In which we once walked, following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. So all of humanity is in this rebellious, dead course, and we were happy to be part of it. We all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. We were doing whatever we wanted. We were living for ourselves, and we were happy with it, and we were living against God. We were dead, just like the rest of mankind. You see verse 3, whose children were we? Well, 
we were children of wrath. Our relationship to God as children was that we were going to be under wrath. And I think he uses that distinct, that term children of wrath to set in contradistinction to what we would soon be made. We are children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. He saved us so that his children, he would show us, like, hey, come into my home. I'm going to show you riches that you can't even measure. You finite creatures, it will take eternity of day by day by day receiving new mercies and there's not going to be reruns on these mercies think about this every single day for all in the coming ages how long are those ages going to last well it better last forever because these these riches are infinite and for infinite things to be handled by finite creatures it's going to take an infinite amount of time how glorious is that god invites us into his house to share his riches with us forever And he doesn't only invite us in as house guests, but as members of the household. Go down to verse 19. We were adopted as sons. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 5, in eternity past, he said, I'm going to make some of these people my children. We were children of wrath, sons of disobedience, just like the rest of mankind. Nope, you're my children. And he did that through the God, through Jesus' death. So then, 19, verse 19, speaking of a church of Jews and Gentiles together in the purpose of, of God. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. What is strangers and aliens? They are outsiders. And I just want you to know hospitality. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. The term, the word, philoxenia. It is brotherly love, Philo, Philadelphia, Xenia, strangers, outsiders. This is the, the term in, in Hebrews 13.1. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. That's just one word, Philoxenia, and that's the word. It's brotherly love to outsiders. And it became used as the word hospitality, and Christians co-opted that and used it to the nth degree. Because of this, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens of the saints, and not just citizens of a kingdom, but members of the household of God. We couldn't even dream up news this good. You're like, oh, I wish we could have news that good, and it's true. This is crazy. Uh, This is truly good news, and it must affect every bit of our life. If we've been made members of the household of God, this affects how we use our homes. It affects how we relate to others. The reality of God's love towards us in the gospel must have real practical evidence in our lives towards one another. Turn your page over and let's get started. We have at least, I think I have 13 things here. 
Yeah, 13 things on the on how this affects our hospitality. In summary, Christian hospitality imitates, reveals, and spreads the gospel. So 13 traits of Christian hospitality grounded in that gospel. <coughs> Christian hospitality treats Christians as family. So you already see that hospitality is going to be very different than the world's definition of hospitality. The world has a view of hospitality. They have the term, and even the ancient world, the Greeks, this wasn't an exclusively Christian concept, philoxenia, but Christians really exemplified it, changed it, uh, and, and used it as our own. Um, in our culture, right, when we think hospitality, you sort of think Martha Stewart. I don't know if she's still a thing, but like that kind of thought of, okay, I'm going to have my house perfect. I'm going to have somebody come over so that they can gawk at my window treatments and my plates and my... Pinterest. Yeah. Pinterest, right? And so that's very... I should change it from Martha Stewart to Pinterest. Pinterest hospitality. I want to have you come over so I can... Instagram it so I can show you how awesome my home is and how all together I have my house. I want to have you over to my house to make much of me. That's what the world does with hospitality. Right? Not exclusively. They love each other. I don't want to... The world can do some good, but it's ultimately not God's kind of good, right? It's the nobody does good, no, not one kind of good. They say, well, that's I mean, it's not as bad as the world could be, but ultimately they are not doing it for the glory of God. They're certainly not grounding their hospitality in the gospel, and there is selfishness in it. The unchanged human heart cannot escape that. We can. We must. Um, or just hotel culture. There's a, a need if, you know, hotels, they, they show great hospitality because well, they're getting money out of it. It's a business, right? You we would invite somebody over if there's something in it for us. So there's just a need to be met or maybe grounded in a, a mix of both that um, we can make ourselves feel good, whatever. It, this is different for us. Uh, I already let the cat out of the bag on, on the word, which we can, we can sometimes make too much out of getting into a word, the etymology and breaking it apart. But here I do think it is helpful. Philo... Uh, brotherly love. Philadelphia, and you're going to actually see this play itself out in our passages. Uh, it's interesting. Al Alexander Strock, in his excellent book uh, that I think will be Book of the Month in a couple months, it's going to be coming up, so look for it. We'll start carrying it on the book table. Um, Alexander Strock's book, Hospitality Commands, is so good, and in it he refers to this word, he or this uh, word Philadelphia, from which philo and philoxenia is derived, and it says the Greeks did not use the term brotherly love to refer to a spiritual brotherhood. They used it only to describe the love between siblings. And as far as I can tell, that's true. We, in our Christian culture, it's not weird to refer to another as brother or sister. But I think we can do it without thinking what is actually meant by that. 
Uh, that would have been strange in the ancient world. It's strange to our world. Xenia uh, is strangers, but the, the word had come to mean just guest or lodging. So Philoxenia had come to mean hospitality in general. But for the, the thinking Christian, it, it means more than that. It's a use of my lodging and my home to treat others as if they are brothers and no, to treat strangers, Xenia, as if they are family and recipients of that brotherly, sisterly, family, kindness, or love. It is to be expressed to everyone. But you're going to see today, and I think throughout Scripture, hospitality isn't primarily something you just give indiscriminately. Although you can use it. You can use hospitality towards someone to say, I hope you become part of my family. I'm going to treat you as my family with hopes that you actually are drawn in to become part of my family through the gospel. And that's what you see in like Galatians 6.10. Uh, brothers, let us not grow weary of doing good, for we'll reap in due season if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, but especially the household of faith. You're going to see this household family language, I hope with new eyes after today, because it is all over the New Testament. Uh, if you have eyes to see it, you will see it all over the place. And that it was always there. It's the foundation. And maybe you guys just see it always in your, in your reading. But as I was preparing for this, I was just blown away. I'm like, how did I miss this all these years? How it is, it just permeates. The term brother, sister used 250 plus times throughout the New Testament. It's the most common term to distinguish, or it's the most common term used in the New Testament to refer to Christians. And so when Paul says, let us do good to everyone, but especially the household of faith. Um, hospitality is something that should be normal and natural and necessary in this church, in our, as we relate to others in our church family. <clears throat> so this common idea, an important idea in the culture, right? Hospitality was a normal thing in the Middle East. Somebody has a need... I, we invite them in. You see it all throughout the New Testament with Jesus. Jesus was always in people's homes. But there was a very different way that he was in Mary and Martha's home compared to the way he was in the Pharisees' home. Right? The Pharisees were having the important people in their home, which is why Jesus would say, don't have the people into your home who can repay, but invite the poor in. This concept was, was natural in that middle, the ancient Middle East. Uh, but Christians had to uh, improve it, co-opt it, um, and it became a, a distinction of the early Christian church. Um, open up to Hebrews 2.11. I, I just want you to see this. As I do that, I want you to, to think about the brother language in the New Testament. Romans 8.29. Uh, Wendy was there earlier. She, she wasn't actually there. She was a few verses later on uh, will he not give us all things. But he predestined us, the foundation of this, he predestined us to become conformed to the image of his sons so that we would be the firstborn among many brothers. And 
If that's true, if he predestined us to be the firstborn among many brothers, Jesus being the first one, and now we're God's sons, and we can call Jesus and each other brothers, if God's for us like that, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son to make us sons, will he not give us all things? Look at this similar thought outworking itself in Hebrews 2. Uh, look at verse 11. Jesus, well, it, we'll start at verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist. So think of the one who we're talking about. You can't have a more important, more powerful one. For whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, that's us Christians, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. And that's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Uh, I wish we could dig into this. We don't have time. But just know, Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers. Um, this section is about Jesus and us being brothers. And in chapter 3, you see, therefore, holy brothers. Well, 14 of chapter 2 the children share in flesh and blood. Uh, therefore, verse 17, he had to be made like his brothers. Chapter 3, verse 1, therefore, holy brothers who share in this heavenly calling, consider Jesus. This whole book that talks about the supremacy of Jesus, Hebrews, we don't have time to go into all of that, but just, it's, we're his brothers. That almost sounds wrong to talk like that. Like the son of God, we're his brothers and he's not ashamed to call us friends. He's still holy. He is still, we should tremble coming into his presence and we can do it with confidence because he made a way. He invited us into his household. He predestined us. We don't come based on our merit, based on our standing, but just we're his family now. Um, and we are so united with Christ as brothers and sisters that Jesus can say that what we do to the least of our brothers and sisters we have done unto him and what we refuse to do to our brothers and sisters is as if we have refused to do it to him right just like if, if you have a sibling and somebody slights your sibling you're like oh you insulted me to and and if somebody cares for your brother or sister physically like oh they're caring for my family it's as if they do it to you that's matthew 25 right jesus says we'll, we'll go there later i was hungry and you gave me food i was thirsty and you gave me drink i was a stranger and you welcomed me i was naked and you clothed me i was sick and you visited me i was in prison and you came to me. Truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did to me. Mm -hmm. So this isn't just talking about anyone, any poor, weak, naked person, but very particularly his brothers, those who he has saved, those in the church. This is looking forward, I believe, at the, the tribulation saints and how there's going to be great need there. But his, that same concept is used throughout all of Scripture for 
uh, or at least all of the New Testament, to, to consider our unity with Christ as brothers and that what we do to one another should be considered as if we are doing it unto him. See, this echoes of this in James 2, 15 through 17. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says, so you remember where this started, if a brother or sister, this is grounded in our unity together as family, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. A very real test of our genuine faith is if we actually relate to each other as brothers and sisters and care for one another as if we are family. Do you remember what Jesus does to those who didn't care for the least of these, his brothers and sisters? He separated the sheep and the goats. A defining characteristic of the sheep, those who have faith in him, was how they treated their brothers and sisters in Christ. And the defining characteristic of the goats was how they treated the brothers and sisters in Christ. A defining characteristic, according to James, of whether or not your faith is legitimate is how you treat another, who, especially a brother or sister in Christ. Who has a legitimate need you got to get the order right right you are not saved because you treat the brothers or sisters right but when you are saved you become united in christ to one another as family just as we are united to christ as brothers and god the father as our father and if you believe that if that faith is real it will have practical outworking Test yourself to see whether you're in the faith. How do you relate to one another? Strzok says again that Paul, well, Paul teaches that Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers. We saw that in Romans 8, 29. is so real that Christ's brotherly solidarity with all of his blood brought Christ is so brotherly united in solidarity to all of his blood-bought brothers and sisters that he says that whatever is done to one of his brothers or sisters is equally done to him. Conversely, to sin against a brother or sister is to sin against Christ. That's 1 Corinthians 8, 11 through 12, speaking of how um, our freedom should be restricted for the sake of our brothers and sisters in Christ. If we sin against them, you're sinning against Christ. John 20, verse 17. This is amazing. Go there. I want you to see this. How important this concept is to Jesus. John 20, verse 17. This is sort of amazing. Not sort of This is... I love it when you like, okay, I understand... I'm understanding the mind of Christ a little bit because he revealed it to us in his words. Jesus' context, Jesus has died. We know the context. Jesus died. He rose from the dead. Mary is at the tomb. And says, where have you taken him? Thinking Jesus is the gardener. And Jesus turned 
said Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said, do not cling to me. So think of what's happened here. Jesus has raised from the dead, hasn't yet gone to the Father. Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, so I haven't done it. I haven't gone to the Father yet, but I'm concerned for my new brothers. It's done. It's finished. I bought these brothers that I predestined before the foundation of the world to be adopted as God's sons. He's like, I've had all this time to wait for brothers. I did it. I bought them. I haven't yet gone to, to the Father yet. Go tell the brothers. Go tell my brothers. He didn't just say brothers. He said, go tell my brothers. And say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father. My God and your God. It's finished. He bought it. It's accomplished. That which was planned from eternity past came to culmination at the cross. And Jesus' first words recorded in John after he rose from the dead are saying, I'm going to my God and your God. Uh, Go tell my brothers, um, my father, about that I'm going to my father and your father. So when you consider hospitality, especially to a Christian, do not think first and most about the what or the practical, the how. Those things have to come out, but it has to be grounded in the why. You see how this is like so easy and natural. Like you almost, I don't I'm excited. You're like, oh, when I get to come to church tomorrow, I'm going to be among my brothers and sisters. More my brothers and sisters actually than my physical brothers and sisters. This is an eternal household. This is eternal relationships planned in eternity past, brought to culmination at the cross and existing into eternity future. And this is why I got into trouble on Wednesday and ran out of time. I'm going to move faster. All right, Christian hospitality must be an expression of love. If this is true, that we are brothers and sisters, then it would make sense that Christians would be known by their love for one another as brothers and sisters. And this is exactly what you see. Uh, how would the world know that we're Jesus' disciples? If recognizing brothers and sisters in Christ and caring for them is a mark of faith, then it would, John thirteen thirty five. by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. There's an ancient Latin work called Octavius, and there's a pagan, Cecilius, in that, who, Christ, who criticizes Christians, and check out his criticism. Hardly have they met when they love each other indiscriminately. They call each other brother and sister. He was criticizing them. This is ridiculous, those guys. Uh, The pagans were forced to say, see how they love one another? It's stupid, but it's undeniable. From their perspective, it it was foolish. Think of 1 John 3, 14. How do we know if we have passed out of life? into death or out of death into life well john 
John 3.14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Do you see that word again? It's all over. All of the major New Testament commands to practice hospitality appear within the context not just of love in general, agape love, but brotherly love specifically. Go to Hebrews 13.1. You remember Hebrews 13.2 is the command for uh, be hospitable? Look at Hebrews 13.1. Let brotherly love continue. What word do you think that is? Philadelphia. That love towards family, towards brother. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show philoxenia. You might be entertaining an angel like Abraham did, right? The angel of the Lord, Jesus himself, was there. <clears throat> but at the very least, you're entertaining your brother or sister in Christ and not merely entertaining them, but caring for their physical needs. As you see, it goes on. Remember those in prison, all the things. If you love your fellow Christian, even those you don't know yet, right? When you come into church and you, I don't know that person. That's weird. That's my brother or sister. Uh, it would be odd not to have them in your home and meet their needs if there are needs to be met. And you can't possibly know there's needs if you don't know them. Um, just like if you had a biological family member and they had a real need and you had the ability to meet that. Or a family member was out of town and they came into town. It's very natural to say, come over to my house. Let's celebrate our family-ness together. And, oh, you don't have a place to stay? I have a room. Unless we open the doors of our home to one another, the reality of the local church as a close-knit family of loving brothers or sisters is only a theory. So Romans twelve thirteen, Seek to show hospitality. We're going to dive into that verse in a minute, but even that, that command, seek to show hospitality, it's within the context of the command, let love be genuine, love one another with brotherly affection. Seek to show hospitality. Again, church, our relationship to genuine love, agape, let uh, love one another with this brotherly affection, how will that play itself out? Seek to show hospitality. It's not optional. It's commanded, commended, and must be um, a C word among us. It must be a description of us. First Peter 4.8. Let's turn there. This is going to be the basis of these next points. First Peter 4.8. We're going to be living here for the next few minutes. Above or the end of all things is at hand. We're in the final ages, final times. Jesus has gone back to the Father. 
The end of all things is at hand. Expect persecution. Expect to be rejected by the world. In recognizing your unity together as family, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So, verse 8. Keep loving one another earnestly, fervently. The Greek word here for earnestly or fervently, it isn't focused on strength of emotion. Like, try, try really hard to love them hard. But it's, it suggests, like, it's not the strength of emotion, but it's like a... The word is used to describe, like, taut muscles, strenuous and sustained effort as an athlete. It suggests a certain toughness of love which endures. It's the kind of love that doesn't just happen. Okay, I'm loving. I'm going to try really hard to love you right now. But it's you strive for it like you might push through a race uh, to, or push through to finish a race. Like I have another mile to go. I'm going to, I'm going to give it my all. Or like a, a mom giving birth to a child. Like there's going to be some work in these next few minutes. I'm going to really, really strain. Um, that's the kind of earnest, fervent love that we're to have. Strock says again, hospitality is a concrete, down-to-earth test of our fervent love for God and his people. Love can be an abstract or indistinct idea, right? If you love somebody, you're like, oh, I need to love you. But it's, it's internal if it's just trying hard. But hospitality is specific and tangible, and they'll actually show, demonstrate the outworking of that love. We seldom complain about loving others too much. Man, I, it's too, I love that person too much. But, but you can complain about the inconveniences of hospitality unless that hospitality is actually natural and loving. Right? Like, I, I guess I should move on. I, was, I had some examples there, but I will keep moving. All right, notice that the commands here are one another commands, New Testament. The New Testament is full of one another's. We have three of them here. Love one another, show hospitality to one another, serve one another. This is natural, normal Christian life among the church. So again, hospitality is not exclusive to Christians, but New Testament very focused on. As we have Galatians 6.10, as we have opportunity, let's do good to everyone, but especially the household, there it is again, of faith. Romans twelve thirteen. You, I guess turn there. We'll be back to First Peter four in a, in a minute. Let love be genuine. Romans twelve thirteen. I want you to see this. It starts in verse nine. Let love be genuine. Um, love one another. Verse ten with brotherly affection. How does that outplay itself? Outdo one another in showing honor. Don't be slothful in zeal, fervent in spirit. You see this, this earnestness, this fervency. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, constant in prayer. Seek to show hospitality. You might not see that fervency in the word seek. I promise you it's there. Seek to show hospitality. That's sort of a lame translation, but I don't know. It would be weird to use the translation I think you should use. I think it should be hunt hospitality. Let me tell you, I'm serious. Let me show you why. Um, the word that's translated seek here means to pursue tirelessly from place to place. 
classical Greek authors used this word in the context of hunting. For example, it might be used to describe the attitude of a hound chasing a fox through the forest, right? The fox seeks, seeks the hound. Uh, hunt is, is, is not an inappropriate word here. Uh, or like a cheetah chasing a gazelle. The cheetah seeks the gazelle. Seek hospitality like that. Uh, when Paul says seek to show hospitality, uh, this word, think of Paul, this word was used to describe Paul as a non-Christian, as a Jew seeking Christians. Acts 26, 11 uh, when he was uh, describing his former persecution of the church, it's actually the word uh, seek is described as persecute, right? It's, that's what, it was this word that he was going after the church, uh, hunting Christians to kill. Interestingly, uh, Paul probably didn't say, man, what an inconvenience this is. He's, he saw something that was so important to him at the time. Well, there's Christians. They're going against God. I should seek them out to destroy them. That required planning. It required effort. It required cost. And he did it gladly because he thought that killing Christians was important enough. On the flip side, how much more should we, as we hunt hospitality, do so with a planning? It's okay to use expense a purposefulness and and even a joy because we know that we're serving God just like Paul thought he was serving God and killing Christians we know we're serving God and we hunt people to show hospitality too uh, John Murray in his commentary on Romans says we are to be active in our pursuit of hospitality active not merely bestowing it perhaps grudgingly when necessity makes it unavoidable we begrudge hospitality more often than we would like to acknowledge. One might see a new family in church and should feel some obligation to have them in their home. But he waits until the last possible moment, hoping someone else will invite them first. And if no one else does and he's still feeling up to it, then he reluctantly extends the invitation. According to Paul, this only when necessary idea seriously misunderstands the comment the glorifying of Christ, and the grace of God in general. Christian hospitality is fervent and zealous. It's on the hunt. We see the same concept in 13.2. Don't neglect hospitality. Hebrews 13.2. Don't neglect hospitality. It's something that is easy to neglect. There's an activeness to it. Don't neglect it. Right, So it requires planning, purpose, effort. And hospitality grounded in this Christian love covers sin. Love is not, this is number four, and I get this back in 1 Peter 4, 8. So go back there. I'll try to keep us here for a minute. Probably fail miserably. <laughs> Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Why are you to love one another in this earnest way that will have an outworking in hospitality? Because love covers a multitude of sins and you've had your sins covered. Uh, classic chapter on love, First Corinthians 13. Uh, love is patient and kind. It 
does not envy or boast. It's not irritable or rude. It does not insist on its own. Or, yeah, it, does, it is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, hopes all things, endures all things. All of that assumes, so many of those things assume that you are going to be sinned against. And you have to cover over sins in love. And you will need to do this if you have people in your home. Right? We are still in mixed condition, right? We hit that all the time. You will sin against people. Uh, God is gracious. He's faithful. If you confess your sins, he will forgive you. And if you have people in your home and you interact with people, you will be sinned against. They will mess up your stuff. They won't care for your stuff the way that you want them to. They will say mean things. They won't be grateful. Um, some of them might even steal. Right? Like, there, you will have sinners in your home, and you're overflowing with brotherly love for them, and they might not back to you. What do you do in that case? Well, I, I think you remember the 10,000 talents that you've been forgiven. And when somebody owes you a hundred denarii, a really real debt, because your love was never grounded in you, but it was grounded in the gospel and remembering the lifetime of debt that you've been forgiven, it makes it easy to not want to drag that Christian before the judge saying, pay me what I owe. Right? We were just in Romans 12. How does that chapter end? Well, if your enemy is hungry, give him something to eat. If your enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. How much more are brothers and sisters in Christ? And when your enemy sins against you, he says, leave it to the wrath of God. Never, never avenge yourself. God knows. He sees. You cover over sin. The home is an amazing place to confess sins and pray for one another, not only when you have been sinned against to cover over it, but just to have normal Christian life. In the midst of James 5, in the midst of persecution there, that's the context of James 5. How do you endure? That's The whole chapter is about enduring. And interestingly, the I'll get there in an equipping hour probably, the, the commands to... Um, like call the elders when you're sick it's actually weak when you're just weary in the faith which might come in the context of physical sickness it might come in the context of persecution but when you're in that state you need somebody close if it gets to the point where you're going to fall away from the faith call your elders it's an emergency have them come and pray for pray for you care for your needs so that you're restored how do you keep yourself from getting to that point Pray for one another. Confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed. Uh, by his stripes we're healed. This is a, in the context of your love for one another, your home is a great place to do that, to help direct your heart to God's love so that you confess your sins. But to, uh, to really bring the gospel to bear on other people's lives. This is why we have small groups in homes. Not always in a home. Sometimes it's, it's wonderful to have a building. But it's normal just to what we do in small group, we do with one another. That's why we have core questions. What, what sin is God revealing to you? What does repentance look like? Let's pray together, confess our sins together, um, and let you know chapter 
James 5, 19. It, my brothers, there it is again, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Love does that. Not only when you forgive, but when you, in the context of your home, meeting physical needs, you help bring a brother back to Christ or sister back to Christ. Um, that's, the home is a great place to restore one another. Um, sorry. <coughs> Galatians 6. I can't help but go here. Galatians 6 starts with the word. What word do you think it starts with? Brothers. <laughs> if anyone is caught in transgression... You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, looking to yourself first. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and thus fulfill the law of Christ. And in that context, just a few verses later, let us not grow weary of doing good, for we will reap in due season if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, but especially the household of faith, the household with our brothers and sisters, the home is a great place to cover over sins and personal forgiveness, restoration from sin, and proclamation of the gospel. And how sweet would it be if your home was the means to lead somebody to Christ and how sins completely uncovered, while they're still a child of, of wrath, they become a child of God. Christian hospitality covers over sins. Christian hospitality does not grumble. Back to 1 Peter 4, 8. I guess we're in 9 now. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. God loves a cheerful giver. 2 Corinthians 9, 7. You are <clears throat> Philippians 2. Um didn't have this in my notes, but I'm going to read it real fast because it is so pertinent and it should be in my notes. 2.14, Philippians 2.14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Why? So that you may be called blameless and innocent children of God. What is the nature? If we're made like God, if we're his children, we have his nature. What, what's going to be characteristic of that? That we do things without grumbling because we are seeking uh, the good of Others, we're counting others as more important than ourselves in humility, um, just as Christ looked not to his own interests but ours and took himself all the way to the cross in humility uh, so that we could be his children or his brothers, so that we could be God's children. Strock again says, Certainly, the ministry and corresponding inconveniences of hospitality can easily rattle our grumbling bones. Hospitality demands old-fashioned work. It may be costly. It's often inconvenient. It's time-consuming. It places a strain on the family. Sometimes guests abuse their Christian brothers and sisters. Hospitality, and during times of persecution, 
it can be dangerous. Right? Hospitality is rarely convenient. It will be filled with joy, but you'll have lots of chance to grumble. Be hospitable without grumbling. We're doing this for the glory of God, we'll see at the end. And the second you start grumbling, you're treating God's gift to you of hospitality and even his gift to you of a trial when somebody sins against you or hospitality doesn't go as you want or it's not a good timing. This was put in your life by God and you should count it all joy when your faith is tested. And when you grumble, you're robbing God of that glory and you're looking at it wrong. Hospitality is humble. Christian hospitality must be humble. First Peter four eight, if you do it without grumbling, or sorry, four ten. Where am I getting this from? Sorry. Oh, serving one another. The third one another command of First Peter four is to serve one another. And you can't pot we already were there with the you know, Philippians two. Um, don't grumble because you're imitating Jesus. But if you're serving one another, serving one another is grounded in humility. And that's where your hospitality must be. Hospitality so often, like we talked about uh, Martha Stewart hospitality, Instagram hospitality, or um, it's grounded in making much of myself. Christian hospitality and Christian service has to be rooted in counting others' needs as more important than my own. In humility, it's the heart of Christian service is Jesus emulating humility. Mark ten forty two. Jesus called them and said to them, "You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to serve, but came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Right, Philippians 2, 4, we were just there. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. Secular entertaining is a terrible bondage. Its source is human pride, demands perfection, fostering the urge to impress, a rigorous taskmaster which enslaves. In contrast, scriptural hospitality is a freedom which liberates. Entertaining says, I want to impress you with my beautiful home, my clever decorating, my gourmet cooking. Hospitality, however, seeks to minister. It says, this home is not mine. It's truly a gift from my master. I'm his servant, and I use it as he desires. Hospitality does not try to impress but serves. And really, that would make sense. A love that's the God-glorifying kind of love loves others as we love ourselves. We have no problem serving our own needs. A Christian love will naturally serve the needs of others and look to their needs as even more important than our own. This is easy to say, really hard to do. We need God's grace. We need his spirit to do this and thankfully he has given us his spirit when he made us his children
thankfully, hospitality, Christian hospitality, flows not from our own provision, but God's provision. 1 Peter 4.10 God's provision of his Holy Spirit. God's provision of his gifts. 1 Peter 4.10 As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. Whoever serves, serves by the strength that God supplies. Verse 11 Uh, like I said earlier, Wendy took us to Romans 8. Let's go there again. <clears throat> right, you were predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he, he might be the firstborn among many brothers, Jesus. Uh, what then shall we say? He who did not spare his own son, verse 31 or verse 32, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? 12.1, flip ahead to 12. That's the foundation for chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. Let love be genuine. Skipping ahead. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. All of those commands of living out the Christian life are rooted in God providing everything to you. How will God not graciously give us all things, including what we need to do those impossible one another commands of chapter 12? You remember... Matthew 25 that we were talking about, the parable of the sheep and the goats. Check this out. What do you think the parable is right before it? What's the context of that? Go there and just sort of be in awe on this point. (laughs) I don't think this was accidental. Parable of the talents. So, what do you do when you have means to care for a brother and sister in need, well, you use it. And when you do that, you're actually taking care of serving Jesus. If you fail to, you're failing to serve Jesus. And the parable of the talents, uh, we're taught the importance of stewardship of that which God has entrusted. To whom much is given, much is required. We are not giving our own stuff to somebody when we, uh, when we have them in our home. We are simply using that which God has given to us in a faithful way to care for our brothers and sisters who God hasn't given as much. Don't be the steward who buried his talent, but use the one who uh, uses the talents that God's given you. Not uh, the, the blessings that God's entrusted to you as a steward, Uh, for fruitfulness. Back to Ephesians 2. Remember, we're talking about all of the God predestined you. You were children of wrath. You were sons of disobedience. Now you've been brought into the household of God. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. Not the result of works. It's not the result of works so that no man can boast. God has two purposes for salvation in chapter 2. One, so that he can show you the immeasurable riches 
for all of the coming ages. We saw that in verse 7. The next one, the next purpose, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared beforehand so that we can walk in him. God saved us for good works. Not because of good works. He saved us apart from good works, but he saved us for good works. And he provides what he demands. If he saved us for good works, he will provide what you need to walk in them. And when you walk in them, you're not doing it from your own strength. You're not doing it to earn salvation, but you're doing it as an outworking of your salvation. Christian hospitality sacrificially meets needs. Strock again. Hospitality fleshes out love in a uniquely personal and sacrificial way. Through the ministry of hospitality, we share our most prized possessions, right? We share our family, our home, our finances, our food, our privacy, and our time. The things that normally you would only share with your family, with the people in your home. In hospitality, you're sharing those things with people who have no natural claim to those things for the meeting of needs. Indeed, we share our very lives. So hospitality will always be costly, but rightly practiced it is directed at true needs. <clears throat> James one twenty seven. What's true religion? It helps orphans and widows in their distress. It meets actual needs. It's not showing off. Right, James 2.15, we said if a brother or sister is poorly clothed, those are the ones we're particularly to hunt. Maybe not exclusively, but particularly. Be on the hunt for true needs in the church. And in the context of these commands in 1 Peter 4, it was persecution and great needs. And that leads to number nine. Christian hospitality is impartial and given to those who cannot repay. And it's certainly not given with hopes of repayment. Right, Matthew 25, 40, who's the one that Jesus made made mention of? The least of these, my brothers. Luke 14, 12 through 14. Jesus said to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or relatives or rich neighbors, lest they invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. James 2.1. I've been spending a lot of time in James. Uh, James 2, who do you think he's talking to? How do you think he, what do you think his reminder to the people is of who they are? He addresses them, my brothers. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. So now we're gathered as the household of God, and out in a visible manifestation of that, the local church. You have a rich guy, you have a poor guy. These are your brothers. James is our brother is addressing us. My brothers, as you hold the faith in our brother, the Lord Jesus, if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and you say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there. 
or sit down at my feet? Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who, who loved him? We make distinctions among ourselves that God has not made. When we look out, we don't say, oh, there's my rich brother, there's my poor brother, and we treat them differently. There's my nice brother, there's my mean brother, there's my brother who likes the same things I like, there's the brother who has different preferences. Don't make distinctions. God has not made distinctions. Don't become judges with evil, self-serving motives. Be on the hunt for those who are hard to love, for those who are hard to serve, for those who will not repay. The, Christian, the practice of Christian hospitality is truly distinctive from the world's because it reaches out to the unwanted and needy people who cannot reciprocate. For many people, hospitality is practiced only to meet their own social needs. Sometimes it's a, it is self-glorifying, designed to impress others with one's home or entertainment. In contrast, Christian hospitality is humble, sacrificial service. I'm pretty sure I stole that paragraph from Strock again. Hospitality is a defining trait of a Christian. We've hit this one a lot, so I'm going to go through it, but I wanted to read 1 John 4.20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, there it is again, his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Christian hospitality is a defining trait of a Christian. Do you... Love, I'm going to read from one paragraph from another good book on hospitality called Face to Face. Love distinguishes believers because the unbeliever is basically incapable of loving anyone but himself. Selfishness, unconcern, and indifference are the things that characterize the unbeliever. His chief desire is to preserve his own peace and quiet and not to be put out or inconvenienced by anyone else. But when a man is saved, his heart is changed from one that worships itself and its own convenience into one that worships God and loves him and his children. Because of this, the absence of hospitality is a fearful thing. If there is no concern for hospitality, there is no love for God's people. And where there is no love for God's people, there is no love for God. 1 John 3.17 if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Right, furthermore, we already saw, we already talked about it. It's in hospitality is an elder qualification. First uh, Timothy 3, Titus 1, and it's a description of the faithful widow. First uh, Timothy 5. Therefore, hospitality is not peripheral. It's actually a central outworking of the Christian life. Hospitality is used to spread the gospel message. We've already talked about that a little bit. I want you to think of Acts. It's full of examples of hospitality assisting in the outward expansion of the gospel. In the gospels, 
Jesus and his disciples, disciples especially when they were sent out, were dependent on hospitality in the spreading of God's word and a, the rejection of God and his word and the gospel message by the apostles. The disciples was characterized by not showing hospitality and acceptance of it was uh, manifested through hospitality. Third John is sort of a book that centers on hospitality. Gaius is commended for hospitality in the spreading of the gospel. Verse 5 says, Beloved, it's a faithful thing that you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are. There's the brother-stranger thing again. Who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we, they may, we may be fellow workers for the truth. So as we care for missionaries, support missionaries who are traveling, missionaries who are returning home. Um, I'm blessed. I'm my mom's child, and I love how you guys just use your home. When the cans need to come home, where do they want to stay? What a blessing. The Yates house, I love that. And so many other homes. Not all homes can be used in that way, but if yours can, it's wonderful to be hunting for how can I have faithful ministers of the gospel stay in my home. Uh, you can, so you can and should host missionaries. Uh, your homes can allow outsiders in who aren't yet Christians and show them the mercy of the Lord as a sweet means of bringing them to Christ. But Christian hospitality should be withheld from some. Uh, false teachers, 2 John 9-10, through 10, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into the house or give him any greeting. So people who say they're Christians and are teaching a false message or people who are teaching a message contrary to Christ, don't support those with use of your home. Also, uh, unrepentant and divisive so-called brothers. Remember, that's how Paul refers to them. So-called brothers. First um, Corinthians 5.11, I'm writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. There you see the close connection of our meals with one another as being tied to our brotherhood. But if you have somebody who says he's a brother, and despite appeals from the church, individuals, small, the whole church, and they are acting, proving themselves to be not a brother, don't eat with them like they are actually separating when you when our church has the distinctiveness of family life in our hospitality and then you separate somebody from that the, the impact should be powerful titus three ten, the person who stirs up division after warning him once and twice have nothing more to do with him and this is not the world right i wrote to you not to associate with sexually immoral people first corinthians 5 but it's I am writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed. Um, it's not those in outside the church, but those inside the church, right? Because if you were to not have anything to do with sexually immoral people and idolaters and swindlers and all those people, you'd have to go out of the world. We're not. We're, God left us in the world to be ambassadors to those people so that they might become brothers. But it's those who bear the name brother 
who are acting as if they weren't and are unrepentant that we are not to have anything to do with. And finally, Christian hospitality brings glory to God. You see repeatedly in Ephesians 1 through 2, it's for the praise of his glory, for the glory of God, that God inviting us into his family was for his glory. 1 Peter 4.11, the culmination of this command, right? We've been spending time there on the command, loving, be hospitable, all the one another's. It's in order that, 1 Peter 4.11, in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to bring to him belong glory and dominion forever. That puts our hospitality in severe contradistinction to the world's hospitality that brings glory to themselves Ours is to bring glory to God. No boasting on us, all boasting on the Lord. When someone sees the way you serve, they ought not say that person is so great or her God, but they would say um, her God in whom, in whose power she serves is a great God. Which is why we say if somebody says, I love the way you serve, you say, praise God. And mean it. Don't just let those words be like our catchphrase, but mean it. Nope, to God gets the glory. And let God be the one who gets the glory in your heart when you serve. So practical application of gospel-based hospitality. I wish I could, I'm sorry I went so long. I wish I could spend more time here. But just, we've, we've already talked about it a little bit. Focus on the goal of your hospitality being not entertaining. That's not the goal. You should care for people, have their needs. Make your house a joyful place to be. But the goal uh, ought not to be the entertaining, like the, uh, I guess hospitality should be service to others, not an ego flatterer. One of the good ways to do that is to be willing to let people in your home if your home isn't perfect. Right? And at the same time, plan plan for hospitality. If you're on the hunt for people and you're saying, I'm going to be using my home. I don't even know with whom I'm going to be using it. I need to be ready. It's also sweet to plan. Put your laundry away. Put your dishes away. Not as a service to yourself, but as a, I don't know who I'm going to have to serve today. So you plan. Um, set aside time after church or set aside time during the week. Hospitality. I don't even have a name to fit here. Leave gaps in your schedule to go meet needs and to be on the hunt. Who do we get to, you know, tell your family, hey, we have that, we have Wednesday night. That's our hospital. We're going to, we're going to have somebody. Be praying. Who should we, how should we use that time? Maybe you'll see a neighbor out in the yard. Hey, come on over. Maybe you'll find out a need uh, in the church. It's, it's amazing if you're prayerful and on the hunt, who you'll find. Uh, invite specific people in advance. Like I said, plan for spontaneity. Keep your house ready, but not. don't worry about perfect. Um, maybe guests, if you have the ability or you can change the way your house is for to have guests, especially at certain points in your life. This is huge for singles. Be able to use your home uh, for be on the ready for people to, to live there. Or if your kids have moved out and you still have rooms, how, all right, this room's ready ready to meet a need for my brother. Maybe I'm going to have a family member in the body of Christ in the household of faith who has a need. I want to be ready to meet it. When are you most likely to have your family together? 
holidays, those kinds of celebrations. Try to maybe think of, this isn't just family time, like not church time, but this is our family. It might be a good time to make the norm there. Look for people who during holidays might feel like I'm not part of a family and invite them into your family uh, during that time. I've heard so many sweet examples from our church of that happening. Um, to keep this from becoming something that's compulsion or would lead to grumbling in your heart or the hearts of your family, shepherd your heart and home with regular gospel preaching that makes the explicit connection to this is why we're on the hunt for hospitality. Um, and I'm way over time, so I'm going to wrap it up. I have more. But God, thank you for your hospitality to us. That while we were children of wrath, uh, you loved us. You raised us up together with Christ, seated us in the heavenly places. You went to prepare a place for us, and we will forever just bask in the blessings of what it means to be part of your family. Uh, I pray that we would use the blessings that you've given us to treat those who are not our family uh, physically, but are our family spiritually, or those who might be uh, as family. God, I pray that you would be glorified through what we do with the content we just received. To whom much is given, much is required. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs>